wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a monster. Exodus 7.10 The monster knew nothing, and then to a chorus of gasps it was born. Its flesh, once rigid, tall, and wooden, had been transformed into thickly corded muscle and dense chitin. The body that had spent so many years upright now lay along the ground, supported by two dozen different legs. It was enough to give the monster's newly formed mind vertigo. But there was no time to consider the mild discomfort. Across from where the monster stood, Two royal priests stood chanting over their own staffs. Within moments, the rich, polished wood had been malformed into two more horrible creatures, not unlike the monster itself. These creatures advanced on the monster, baring their fangs and flicking their tails. But the monster was still distracted by its sudden, disorienting birth, it didn't realize anything was amiss until a sharp pain ran up its side. The monster grimaced as ancient venoms violated its new arteries. In a rage, it turned to see that the two small creatures had driven their fangs into the monster's many ankles. And so, the monster learned about violence. The monster opened its mouth and screamed discovering in the process that it could scream. It screamed a sound like wind through a raging brush fire. The feet, what it would later know as human feet, that surrounded the monster shuffled backwards. But the monster did not notice. The scream had alerted it to the length and power of its jaws. The monster twisted its surprisingly lithe body and snapped the creatures up, rending them between its dozens of misshapen and crooked teeth. The monster swallowed, and its eyes reflexively closed as the ravaged bodies became its first meal. And so the monster learned to do violence. The danger, now averted, it began to writhe on the ground, slowly learning the use of its claws and the balance of its serpentine tail. There was much noise, shouts and screams, 
words the monster did not understand. A man sitting on a throne pointed at the monster and spoke. From the corners of its many eyes, the monster saw a clump of sandaled feet rushing toward it. The feet were accompanied by the bottoms of staffs, similar to the staff the monster had so recently been, except for the cutting bronze edges that topped them. The monster felt a rush of what it would later understand to be fear. It turned and fled the palace, hobbling from where the two creatures had bitten. It could not understand the shouts of Egyptian that chased it from Pharaoh's palace, and not even the one voice that called softly after it in Hebrew. The monster darted between the legs of the stunned crowd and bolted into the streets of the city, the palace guards in hot pursuit. It plunged through the alleyways and over rooftops, but could not outfox the expert hunters and trackers employed by the palace. Its body was too new and noisy. It did not yet understand the art of stealth. But the monster had its own advantages, even if they were a mystery to itself. After turning a final corner, it found the river and, driven by a wild pulse of instinct, threw itself into the murky depths. The palace guards stopped their chase, and when it did not surface for two minutes, they assumed the monster had drowned. Meanwhile, beneath the waves, the monster's gills bloomed open and it breathed in the rich oxygen of the Nile. Much later, the monster resurfaced on the far bank and shook off the water that lingered on its coat. Instincts deep within the monster's mind nudged its gnarled snout until it pointed south towards the humid caves that rose up behind the city. Shelter, the instinct said, and the monster obeyed without understanding. By the time it arrived at the caves, it was dusk. The monster was tired, but it used its anger and hunger to evict the creeping things, the growling things, and the flying things that called the cave home. Those that stood their ground were subjected to violence, quickly becoming the monster's most effective tool. The monster did not understand the idea of preferences yet, but it did take particular enjoyment in crunching the bones of the flying things. Full and satisfied, the monster lay itself down in front of the cave entrance, not for any reason except that it felt right, as following your nature often does. Sprawled out, the monster began to experience the first drizzle of exhaustion spreading across its long, bizarre body. Muscles ached from the strain of the day, and the raw, throbbing bite wounds now cooled gently in the cooling desert air. The monster's eyelids gently lowered over its blue, violet, oblong, and compound eyes as sleep draped over its body for the first time. And then it felt a prodding sensation on its tail. The monster snapped awake, its fur bristling, its claws springing forth, its stinger poised. It wheeled around. A group of small boys stood at a nearby patch of boulders, gawking at the monster. Closer still, an even smaller boy stood right next to where the monster had just been sleeping. He held a staff, the source of the prodding, but his staff was very skinny and very long, as if the boy had wanted to stay far away from the monster while still making contact.
It took a few moments for the monster to glean all this. Most of it was entirely new information. And during that time, the smaller boy merely stared. Finally, when it seemed like truly nothing would happen, the monster growled from deep within its half-dozen lungs. The boys by the boulders ran off in terror. But the smaller boy did not. An acrid smell filled the monster's nostrils, and a patch of moisture appeared on the front of the smaller boy's robes. Still, he did not move. The monster considered its size, its strength, and realized this boy could, perhaps, be eaten. The monster took a step towards the boy, but before it could do much else, the boy turned and sprinted away, making a high-pitched whine as he went. The rest of the monster's night passed without incident. The sun rose on a new day, and the monster learned that the sun could rise. It walked on various appendages to the mouth of the cave where it was greeted by warmth, a sensation the monster realized it enjoyed. It walked in a tight circle before lying down. It yawned, opening its mouth wider than seemed possible, and looked out at a world it still barely understood. It had chosen a good cave. From where it lay, the monster could see down into the valley all the way to the city, which was still in shadow. And just then, its ears picked up. Voices. From its vantage, the monster saw the group of boys long before they saw it. They were the same ones from last night, except this time one of the older boys was leading them. The smallest one walked with his head down, his face bright red. The lead boy was speaking loudly and waving a small, glinting dagger. If the monster could have understood him, he would have heard this. It'll be easy. Easy. If my piss-pants brother could touch it, then I'll kill it. The other boys laughed and cheered. As the monster watched the marauding boys, its guts screwed up in a spasm of hunger. The monster did not know this, but since the previous night, it had grown nearly one and a half times larger. All the monster knew was that it wanted a bigger meal and more of the flying things in the cave. It was then that the monster had an idea. It considered the previous night, how the boy had not prodded him while he was awake, but rather had waited until it was asleep. An interesting thought coalesced inside the part of the monster's brain that was predatory. It was the concept of a trap. The monster digested this idea, then laid down and closed its eyes. But it did not fall asleep. Instead, it listened carefully to the ebb and flow of the nearby conversation until it was replaced by the heavy silence of anticipation. The monster's inner ear felt the vibrations of the lead boy's footsteps, and its forked tongue tasted the hot breath that rushed from his throat. The steps drew closer. 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 The monster still did not move. Then the monster's eyes all flew open at once, fixing the boy in a gaze of pure, triumphant hunger. 
The boy had time only for his eyes to grow wide before the monster's jaws cleaved him in two at the waist. The monster was only vaguely aware of the screaming coming from the other boys as it masticated wetly with the serrated teeth of two dozen different apex predators. It was entirely unaware of the smallest boy, the one who'd wet himself, the one who the now-dead boy had called brother, who now stood watching the gruesome scene without making a sound. Soon, the older boy had been reduced to drying blood on the rocks and gristle in the monster's gums. The other boys had run off ages ago, all but the smallest boy, who stood watching with his staring eyes. The monster watched him curiously for a moment, and then retreated back inside the cave. That night, the monster dreamed its first dream, a hodgepodge of animal sensations, fight and flight tearing at each other to impose some kind of order over the monster's manifold brain, and... At the center of it all, the image of a burning bush. The morning sun shone down on the city, and from where the monster stood, one could see the flat-topped stone houses that ringed the outer limits, where musty donkeys and the occasional camel pawed at the dust. An acrid, chemical stench emanated from a large building nestled farther away, where workers engaged in the complex physical alchemy of shaping bronze. This industrial scene slowly gave way to the carob-scented parks and palace buildings that comprised the inner ring of the city. But the monster was not interested in this. Its many nostrils were pointed skyward, twitching in the breeze. It could smell the same raw, red substance that had gushed so willingly from the now-dead boy. The monster smelled blood, and had heard screaming. After the previous day, it understood that screaming meant food. Food for the monster, at least. And so it raced down the hillside on its stubby, long, furred, insectile, powerful, and graceful legs. And as it got closer, it saw people and a panic. These people were much larger than the boys, more like the people present at the monster's birth, and they were running from place to place, Eyes white and rolling, mouths shrieking. They didn't notice as the monster slithered down alleyways and in between legs in its pursuit of the blood smell. Finally, it broke through the crowd to discover the river it had swam across only days earlier. Only now, it was red. Red as the boy had been, and the redness seemed to stretch far into the horizon. Nearby, humans of all sizes stood sobbing. Some vomited. The monster had come out near the bronze works, and red-hot weapons sat unattended in buckets of now blistering blood, filling the air with the scent of cooking flesh. The smell was too much. It overwhelmed the ravenous monster, and... In spite of the protests of the herbivore portions of its brain, it dove mouth-first into the river. It drank deeply from the blood and chewed noisily on the fish that floated belly up on the surface. With each gulp, it felt its body thicken 
and lengthen. The people on the banks barely registered the monster, thinking it some kind of diseased dog or cow or hippo or crocodile. They merely gaped at the river and wondered at the source of such an abomination. The bronze works shut down for the day. Slowly, people began to leave the banks as they realized there was nothing they could do to fix the river. They were put off by the swarms of flies and the nauseating smell of blood baking in the midday sun. They filed away until only one small figure remained. But the monsters stayed, drinking and cavorting in the thick crimson waves, totally unaware of the young boy on the bank. The young boy merely watched the monster. His fist clenched a bloodless white around his brother's dagger. The boy returned home late that evening. His mother had not stopped crying since he returned with the news of his brother's death. His father was sitting silently, fiddling with a wood carving of Anubis. Out of a sense of protection, the boy did not tell them about the horror of the river. They would find out eventually, but not now. The boy watched for three days straight as the monster gorged itself on blood, growing rapidly with each meal. By then, it was twice as long as a crocodile, and three times as heavy. Eventually, the people who lived along the banks managed to chase it off, sickened by its red fur and the blood clotting between its chitin plates. After that, the boy spent each day stalking the banks with his brother's dagger, protecting the open wound of the river in case the monster returned. The monster did not return. Rather than deal with the angry citizens, it traveled upstream and found a quiet spot away from the city, where it could feast to its heart's content. On the morning of the tenth day, it arrived at this uninhabited spot, only to be greeted by the disappointing sight of a river filled with nothing but fresh, cool water. Fury pulsed through the monster. It had assumed that blood was the way of things. It had taken it for granted. In a rage, the monster twisted and writhed, snapping at the air. One of its sharp incisors clipped its meaty tail, and for a brief moment the monster slurped at the foul blood that spilled forth. But it wasn't the same. The monster's stomachs growled, but the monster's many nostrils gave no clue to where food could be. Until... A faint but familiar sound floated over the air, screaming again from the city. The monster thundered along the bank, eyes fixed forward. The monster ate well that day. The river had lost its blood, but it had given a new gift. The cold, leaping things, which squirmed and wriggled by the hundreds inside the monster's gullet. It was good sport for the monster. Instead of growing fat and happy from the river blood, the monster was now forced to chase these leaping things from bank to bank. In doing so, the monster learned more about its body, feeling the muscles coil and release as it tested its agility against its preys. Soon, the monster had no trouble scooping up the leaping things, and it ate messily the entire afternoon. And hidden amongst the alleyways, the young boy watched it all. He thought of the mysterious blood and the frogs. He thought of his brother's death. 
and he thought how these things related to the appearance of the monster. And slowly, slowly, correlation became causation in the young boy's mind. The following weeks were similarly kind to the monster. Food seemed to appear as if by magic, and even when it disappeared it was replaced by something just as delicious. The monster devoured swarms of buzzing things, clouds of chirping things, and entire herds of field beasts that had been stricken with fatal illnesses that somehow passed through the monster without effect. Stalking predators with slashing claws and rippling muscles were split open like overripe pomegranates by the monster's powerful jaws. Even the terrifying hailstorm, which sent the monster cowering in fear, left behind its fair share of crushed and mutilated meat. But what of the boy? The boy wandered through this apocalypse in a daze. The world he knew had vanished into death and despair. New horrors regularly presented themselves, as if on schedule, each one making a mockery of the reality he had once held dear. He awoke, coughing up flies, picked locusts from his mother's hair, watched his father's cattle die, fled from wild beasts, was bruised by date-sized hail, and slept gingerly on his oozing boils. And in the midst of each of these abominations, he would come across the monster, feasting on the things that were destroying his family, his home, and growing stronger with each passing day. And with each passing day, so too did the boy's conviction become stronger. The monster was the cause of it. All of it. Of course, he tried to rally his neighbors, tell them that it wasn't Ra or Osiris or Set who plagued them. It was the monster. Yes, the monster from the river. It was the one. Couldn't they see how it drew strength from their pain? But whenever he started to convince his neighbors, the city would be assaulted by some new terror, and all his allies would vanish in the confusion. Only the boy remained. By the time the locusts moved on from the destroyed Egyptian crops, the monster was so large it could barely fit inside its cave. It could have eaten an elephant if one were foolish enough to approach it. Instead, after its final locust meal, the monster eased itself into the cave and lay down amongst the scattered bones of long-dead prey. It snuffled and sighed contentedly as it slowly drifted towards a perfect sleep. The monster hadn't learned many things, but it did understand that if it slept at night, there would be light in the morning. But when the monster woke up the next morning, there was not. The monster awoke to a darkness that was impenetrable, even to those of its eyes that were nocturnal. In a panic, it stumbled from the mouth of its cave and skidded down the dusty hill. It sniffed at the air, but it could smell nothing. Not even the ambient smell of the desert. It growled in frustration, but even the sound seemed to be swallowed up by the blackness. Even its sense of touch seemed muffled. The monster couldn't tell if it was standing on sand or grass or rock. It was as if all communication between the monster and the outside world had been cut off. The blackness that enveloped the world was the first thing to truly frighten the monster. There was a sense of finality to it, 
as if the pattern of sun-up, sun-down had been permanently fractured and its pieces pulverized. Frantic and hopeless, the monster could think of nothing else to do but carefully feel its way back to its cave. Once inside, it curled its long tail around itself and tried to ignore its aching stomachs. There it stayed for three black days and three black nights. And in the city, the boy did the same. On the morning of the fourth day, the monster awoke not to darkness, but to a thin dawn light. It dragged its weakened body to the cave mouth. In the pale sun, it could see what had become of it. The monster was still gigantic, but now skin hung from its bones where fat had melted away. The monster began to wonder what could have caused such darkness. What could be responsible? Its stomachs cramped. The monster winced. Food, food now, said the instincts. There would be time for thought later. The monster breathed deeply, trying to catch the scent of something edible. The faint odor of something dead floated over from across the river, near the city. That was all a monster needed. It began its journey. The dead smell grew stronger as it approached the river, stronger still when it reached the bank. Then the breeze shifted, delivering the full weight of the scent. It was not a single dead thing. No, the smell of death hung over the entire city. The monster sniffed again, filling its sensory glands with the unmistakable scent of freshly dead human. Its stomachs growled in anticipation of the meal that awaited. The monster slipped into the silent river, only vaguely aware that it was usually busy at this time of morning. When it reached the other bank and crossed into the city proper, the monster became aware of something else. It did not understand grief, but it felt as the grief rippled out from each home, colliding with the grief of each other home, building on itself until it formed a wave so massive and dark and fearsome that the monster, for the first time in many months, felt afraid. It instinctively cowered, flattening its ears and walking quietly so as not to be noticed. It would have turned back, but hunger drove it forward. The wailing had started now. It came from every home, every shop, every doorway and window. Even the palace, so aloof and distant, was filled with a keening cry that seemed to hold the entire world in its sound. This merely drove the monster forward, the grief it had not understood. But these noises had always meant food. It padded through tight alleyways toward one of the town squares. There, it found its prize. Many bodies. Hundreds of them who had died where they stood. A look of mild shock on their faces. Men. All men. All meet. On the other side of the square... The boy sat in front of his family's home, watching silently, but with rising nausea, as the monster devoured his dead neighbors. 
The monster's jaws worked quickly, mashing up corpse after corpse with its antler-sized teeth, the wet, smacking sounds mixing with the soft moans and sobs that emanated from the surrounding buildings. As the boy watched, it ate forty, fifty, a hundred or more bodies before its malformed bulk was satisfied. Then, slowed by sheer weight of the meal, the monster left the city. The young boy was the only witness. His eyes were dry. He had already mourned his firstborn brother. It made sense that the monster who had killed one firstborn could kill them all. This was a calamity. The others could blame Ra, Bast, Set, but the boy knew who was truly responsible for the disasters that had befallen them. He grabbed his brother's knife and began to formulate a plan. That evening, as the monster lay at the cave mouth, it saw something truly unusual. One moment the city was dark, and the next a towering inferno was burning down from the sky, suffusing the city with the light of the divine. But nothing seemed to burn. Soon after, the inferno began to move towards the monster's cave. The monster watched as a large group of men, women, and children walked by, shepherded by this painfully bright light. At the front of this group, two familiar brothers walked together. They spoke in hushed whispers about what had transpired in the night, but kept their faces forward so the people they led could not see the tears running freely down their faces. The monster watched with lazy eyes as this group passed, too sleepy to pay much notice. That is, until the flames passed by it. For a moment, they seemed familiar to the monster, as if they duplicated a burning inside the monster itself, a burning it had not even noticed until the moment the flames approached. The monster stood now, and this movement was enough to catch the flames' attention. For a few seconds, the flames hesitated in front of the cave, and turned their attention away from the humans and towards the monster. Instinct kicked in. The monster growled and snapped, defending its home. But the holy flames gave no indication of fear. They simply noted the monster, like a farmer noting a scarecrow after harvest, something that has served its purpose and is now merely an eyesore. Within the hour... The flames and the people were out of sight. The sun was high in the sky at this point, but the monster strangely felt no warmth. In fact, it felt an encroaching cold, as if the air itself had lost something essential with the passing of those flames. The monster stretched and huddled against itself for warmth. Sleep did not come easy. The next morning, the sun rose as normal, but the monster struggled to rise with it. Its long, thick body uncurled with snaps and pops that made the monster bark and groan with anger. Its body had never betrayed it like this. Tottering slightly, the monster came to the cave entrance and looked out over the desert, seeing the broken glass path that the divine flames had burned into the sand and dust. It prepared to leave for a day of hunting. And this 
was when the first arrow hit it. The monster screeled with rage. It twisted awkwardly, seeking the source of the pain. Instead, its writhing brought it face to face with its attacker. The young boy stood just down the hill. Another arrow knocked in his small bow. He fired again, and this arrow found the monster's face. The part of the monster that was a wolf howled. The monster's powerful legs coiled beneath its lumbering body, and it sprang towards the boy. The boy's eyes grew wide. He began to turn to run. But then something unusual happened. The monster did not land gracefully. It fell sideways, shaking the earth as it did, and it slid towards where the boy stood. The monster curled around itself, shaking and twitching, overcome by spasms and seizures. The boy remembered himself and knocked another arrow, but by the time he had, the monster was back on its feet. They stared at each other for a moment. And then, the monster bounded back toward the cave, the boy's next arrow burying itself harmlessly into the cave wall. Once safe, the monster attempted to scratch the arrow from its hackles with one of its hind hooves, but found that its body, once lithe like a snake's, could no longer stretch quite so well. A rigidity had begun to form over the monster's joints. The monster twisted back and forth, but the arrow was always just out of reach. Strangely, the monster had no appetite. In fact, it was very, very sleepy. It was certain that something wasn't right. It was tired. It was confused. It made sense to trust its instincts. The arrow didn't hurt anymore, but as the monster slept, the blood continued to run free, slowly thickening until it resembled sap. The boy waited at his post for the monster to reappear, not wanting to risk entering the dark cave. When it didn't, he returned to the city. Patience. Patience would be the key. The monster no longer recognized its own body. It had shrunk again, so much smaller than before. Not even the size of a goat. Though, despite this, it had still retained much of its length. It was as if someone had grabbed its body from both ends and pulled. As it prepared to walk to the mouth of the cave, the monster realized its limbs were shorter too, stumps that were so painfully stiff the monster could barely move forward. The sun was already beating down on the rocks. Dawn was long past, the monster realized. How long had it slept? Three days, thought the boy, sitting at his usual spot. Three days since the monster had last appeared from the cave. Now here it came, and the boy knew his patience had been rewarded. It was so much smaller. It barely seemed like a monster at all. Now was the time. The boy began to circle around the valley, getting in position for his ambush. The monster was unaware. It simply lay in the hot sun, focusing all its energy on feeling the warmth. But no matter what, it didn't permeate the cold emptiness inside the monster. 
Suddenly, a crippling pain rippled through the monster. Its limbs spasmed, pulling tight to its body as its spine, normally curved, stretched into a straight line. The monster whimpered, and its eyes rolled in their various sockets. It was trapped in this agonizing position for what felt like hours until... All at once, it released. It lay in the dust, panting and shuddering. The boy had moved well. Revenge guided his silent steps until he was just below the ridge next to the cave mouth. He held the dagger close to his chest and whispered his brother's name. Then he leapt from his cover and charged. The monster was even smaller now, barely the size of a dog. It didn't even move as the boy rushed from his cover, blade drawn. To the boy, it didn't even seem like it could move. It just laid there, making a pathetic noise and shaking uncontrollably from toe to tip. The boy slowed slightly. He watched the terrified monster try and fail to run away. Half its legs were useless, and as the boy watched, some of the monster's eyes began to turn a milky gray, just like his grandmother's. The young boy sat down in front of the monster, and, as he had done so often these past months, he watched, but this time without fear. The monster, still shrinking in size and feeling so, so cold, had the ludicrous impulse to put its head in the boy's lap, and before it could stop itself, the monster had done just that pushing its ragged face deep into the boy's tunic. Through the pain and fear, the monster realized that this was the warmest it had ever felt. The boy raised his knife, prepared to plunge it deep into the many eyes of the monster, to feel the hot blood rush over his hands, to satisfy his revenge. But... He found he could not. He felt the rage drain from his body as the monster mewled and shuddered in his lap. Suddenly, they heard the thunder of hoofbeats in the distance, and within seconds hundreds of the pharaoh's best soldiers raced by, a swarm of chariots pulled by frothing horses. They followed the broken glass trail as they raced after the people who had so recently left Egypt. The boy and the monster both watched them pass, equally mystified. After a moment, the boy lowered the knife and gently stroked the patchy fur behind one of the monster's ears. The monster shuddered and pressed closer to the boy. Soon, the sun began to drop in the west, painting the desert sky with amaranth purples and bloody reds. The monster continued to shrink and cry and writhe in pain, desperately clinging to life. The boy murmured softly to it, stroked its fur and scratched its scales, and massaged its muscles when they spasmed whispering kind words and mother's lullabies as the monster's body slowly stiffened and narrowed, stiffened and narrowed. 
And so, the monster learned about love, not a moment too soon. When the surviving soldiers returned from the Red Sea that night, they brought with them a story of miracles, of an ocean parting at the will of a shepherd, of a vengeful god that punished and protected according to whims they did not understand. These remarkable tales spread through the streets from mouth to ear. Within hours, all who dwelt there knew the story. But there was one person who wouldn't hear it that night. At the mouth of a cave, nestled in the hills just outside the city, there sat a young boy. He sat alone, legs crossed, a bronze dagger on his belt. His eyes stared up at the stars, and his hands rested in his lap, where they cradled with unusual tenderness an ordinary wooden staff. This week's episode, Exodus, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Anthony Batello. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our new patrons, Kyle King and Edward, for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.